tell me about a photo project that you've done in the past that is, uh, I don't know, maybe it's your favorite or it's one that maybe got away, but it's a photo project that you have done and that uh, is particularly a standout project either in quality or in process. Well, when you bring when you say project, that that makes it harder for me to think about because mostly what I have done are experiments rather rather than projects. Sure, project makes it sound like there's like you know something got finished and wrapped up, and I tend to have like a thousand experiments that go various distances, and some of them are just going to keep going all my life, and those I guess would be sort of like projects, kind of a treadmill form of project that just goes on and on forever. And and I guess I could see my photography that way, that I have certain things I keep going back to um, that I think of as projects because they continue. Uh, and they can be basically divided up into some of the sort of standard genres of photography, you know, like taking pictures of birds or taking pictures of people or, you know, portraits or close-ups of you know, botanical specimens or whatever. There are things I do over and over again. Um, but what, what I get excited about or when I, is when I try something, I feel like I try something odd or different or something I've never done before and it clicks. So that would be what I would sure. think of as a successful project is, is one of my experiments kind of works out instead of, <laughs> instead of not. <laughs> so one of, you know, in in traditional media, and okay, well, I guess photography is traditional media. In other artistic media, uh, I'm never happier than when I'm uh, experimenting with a new technique. Um, you know, so, you know, that's part of the deal is that I really don't consider myself a fine artist. Uh, right. I consider myself a designer. I'm certainly a designer by training. I teach design. Um, I, so, you know... Uh, if I'm experimenting on uh, a new technique, you know, it's with an eye of what I can, uh, how I can integrate it um, into uh, a new project with, so yeah, I'm, I'm with you completely. And that's probably one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast, right? That's right. Um, we're both experimentalists. Yes, and, right. Yeah. And, and I think since before I lose track, I think the thing that I'm, I've been the most kind of pleased with is when I figured out how to digitize medium and large format film using a camera, a digital camera and a macro lens. And I'm nowhere near done figuring that out, but that's kind of got me the farthest into understanding how to work with color and how to, how to find kind of the right. And it really feeds back into figuring out how to take better pictures more than anything else I've done because I just get right in there. I guess it's forcing me to get right in there and see, you know, look really closely, literally magnified view of, of a negative and, and figure out what's going on in it, uh, with it. And so, yeah, I think that's probably been the, the ongoing experiment that's been the most exciting for me, especially when I'm able to then make a print, uh, color print and, and be happy with that. And that's a lot of, for me, that's a complicated process with a lot of steps and a lot of variables and, it's taken a while to start to get some handle on it. And, um, it's more convenient when I stick 35 millimeter film into a film scanner and push a button and 
there's a lot less for me to do, but I also learn less. Um, so yeah, I think that's of the last couple of years, that's been the thing I've gotten the most out of. Sure. Sure. So um, shooting, shooting with old medium format cameras, uh, getting the film on a light table, taking pictures of it with a macro lens, and then just trying a zillion different software routes to getting it into, uh, into a, you know the right colors and lo- looking looking good on the screen and then maybe printing it out. One of the things so. um, that I did when I came back to photography, which would have been uh, six years ago, uh, when I came back to photography, um, uh, I kind of I did a couple of things. I said I don't have to sell anything. I don't have to enter anything in a competition. I don't have to uh, show it to anyone. Um, All I have to do with this is please me. Um, And so when I did that, one of the things that I, one of the parts of that process was I relieved myself of the need to do something like a series, uh, or a project or, you know, uh, what I told, what I immediately hit upon. And I've told people for the last six years, my, um, uh, photography project is making pretty pictures. Um, and that is something that, um, uh, as I said, it's freed me from the anxiety of, of, really considering audience. Um, it's freed me from the need, um, to take a picture with the idea of who wants to see this picture, because I'm the only one who's important in that process. And I'm the only one who will need to look at that picture in that process. And so, um, every once in a while I think, oh, you know, uh, how do I put together enough of these? I've been thinking about doing zines lately. Um, and part of the deal is I feel like if I'm going to do a zine, I need a cohesive body of work, something that that makes sense together. You know, I can't have uh, a lumen box picture and a pinhole and a four by five um, uh, and, you know, a half frame. And say, you know, and using all different photo stocks, you know, film stocks. Well, you could, but it would be a lot harder to make it cohere. Right, right, right. So, um, so I came up, uh, with an idea and I've mentioned this to you, uh, but, <laughs> uh, but I've modified it. Uh, I've mentioned this a couple of times, uh, to, to different people. Uh, but I don't think I've said it on, on the podcast or any of the other ones that I've, uh, guested on. And, uh, the idea, uh, I think I'm going to do a zine and it's called One Roll. And it is the idea of shooting an entire roll of film. And, um, in that time, uh, or in that roll of film, I have to make sure that every picture is worth showing. Um, so, yeah, so it seems like what your plan is, is to make the first zine you do as hard as it can possibly be. To absolutely. Pull up, so that it will be all uphill from there or whatever. <laughs> all downhill, you know, or all, 
all absolutely never re- never to be repeated that type of thing it would be a dead well end. it's just yeah it's just it's so just making it harder yeah right so how about this to make it harder the original idea was one role one day um so i shoot that whole role in a day and um that that concept um was uh, I tried it actually this last weekend. Um, the plan was to go out on Friday and shoot 36 exposure. Yeah, and I'm choosing 36 exposures too. 36 exposures of Portra 160 and um, shoot the interesting things that are around me that I've... Uh, part of the deal is, uh, you know, a lot of these are going to be ones that I shot before. So I know that they're visually interesting but um not have them uh you know so uh, it's going to be for a new audience so the you know the audience hasn't seen these these uh these items before like there's a there's a post down my street it's not part of this series but there's a post uh down the down my street that's a railroad tie that's been turned on its end and dug into the ground and it is disintegrated over the last 30 or 40 years very interestingly um and so uh when i have a new camera and i'm walking the dog i'll i'll put the new camera in my pocket and uh and take a picture of that post as kind of it's a benchmark you know it's just one of those things um so i could put something so, like that what is the dog what does the dog do with the post she makes me walk down the street to where the post is okay so it's a so, female dog so it's not about the post okay. it's not well yeah but that doesn't she's a female dog but she'll pee on a post too um and she'll pee anywhere another dog is peed uh so uh so that's that's part of a raison d'etre. Okay so you both you're both into the post. All right. Right. Right exactly. But um the the whole idea with this series is that I can uh take pictures of things that I practiced and I know the right angles on. Um but for now for publication for a series for an audience and you know the audience keeps coming in i keep thinking who the hell wants to look at these things um uh right so you're gonna have to figure out some way to fool yourself into forgetting about right right exactly so anyway that's um i'm i don't know maybe i'll never do this and maybe i'll develop that role of film and look at it and go oh god horrible idea but that's well i think you should do it and here's in Kind of here's what comes to mind when when you describe that you you make me think of uh, j- journalists. Um, my dad was a journalist, and the the those guys had to they had to come up with, you know, a shot or a series of shots or an article or whatever every day if you were working for a daily paper, and that was a real thing. You know, you those guys did go out and shoot up off a roll or two or three or more every single day, and then you know, would try and come up with a something set of good images from that. And so it, it certainly is a thing that people can train themselves to do. And I think it's useful, like whether or not you end up wanting to, you know, use up some tree, you know, wood to, to make a zine with it or not is secondary. Like, I think you should do the exercise and eventually you'll get your zine. It doesn't have to be the first roll of film. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, and that was something that I was thinking is the idea that it is, 
um, you know, I might need some practice to do this. And, you know, when... It's, it's when, kind of like the fascination of a contact sheet, which is a wonderful right. thing, and you know, to see, like, it may not be that every frame is good, but there there's a whole story there that you don't get any other way. In fact, there was a really interesting article in the New York Times the other day about a famous photograph uh, from the Vietnam War of a bunch of wounded men. And for years and years and years, there was a lot of confusion and controversy over who the actual main person at the center of the frame was. And, and there were two contenders. And one of the clues to finally solving that pretty much was that a different photographer had shot a whole role of the same like sequence of events. And so there were all these clues there in the contact sheet that nobody had had access to from that one single frame that was famous. So, you know, there was, there's, there's a lot of other information that you kind of have there when you do that, um, what you're describing where you, where you, where you're sort of forced to tell, to use the whole, you know, the whole role of film. It's like, it's pushing you to, to maybe try harder or, you know, look right. more closely or well, something like that. One of, one of the things uh, with those, um, uh, what am I trying to say? With those contact sheet series that we see, and there are books uh, out there of contact sheet. So you, you end up with a picture, you know, with the final picture that was chosen, and then they show the contact sheet. And it's often portraits. Uh, studio portraits, you'll see that, uh, the contact sheet thing a lot. Um, and those are trying to find different angles and different emotions and different expressions of a single subject. And, sure. and if you're, if you're photographing a tiny bird in a big berry bush, you might throw away 300 shots to get one right focus, you know? Right. So Which that, is, that's, that's one kind of way to look at contact sheets, but, this is a different way where you're we're going to assume that you're you photographed your post enough that you're going to get the exposure and the focus right in every frame. So really what is interesting is well what you know what are you choosing to show us and uh, right right that kind of thing. Well and and part of the deal was um I was thinking of uh, from the point of view of 36 shots. Well, I can't have four shots of the same thing to get the one good shot. In, in that type of thing, it, 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 part of the series, part of the challenge of doing this type of series is that you have to make that decision from, uh, before you, before you click the shutter, you have to make that full decision. Um, and you know, and anyway, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm still working through it. I have to, um, I really have to, to do, and one of the other things I was thinking about is, uh, like on page size, it, I, I was thinking about a landscape, um, sized page. Well, not all photos work with landscape and we flip the camera and, and work into a, uh, a vertical format often. Well, I can't do that because that the page doesn't support it. So it, it really, it really did control what I shot in a very interesting way. Um, so yeah, and you're right. It, the first one may not, um, may not work. I know I have at least one, uh, well, I refer to them as bag fires, 
Um, but it was, uh, uh, I bumped the, uh, the shutter while it was sitting, uh, on the, uh, console of my car. So I have a picture of the headliner of my car, uh, and which I hope is out of focus, (laughs) you know, (laughs) um, but, uh, you know, so anyway, that, uh, so so there's a, there's a strategy that I sometimes use to approach what you're talking about, which is I, I often will carry both a digital and a film camera. And this is going uh-huh. to come up later if we make it through our whole outline for today. That's right. Exactly. Um, it, it, what, what I often do is I'll encounter something that really, that seems really interesting to me, but I'm not quite sure what I'm doing with it. I'll take a whole series of digital shots on the spot, kind of work through the experience of photographing it. And when I've gotten done with that, I'll pull out a film camera, hope often one with a, a fairly similar angle of view and, and just go back and, and just expose the frames that I felt were really right while I was doing, right. you know, wasting all the, all the pixels on nothing. And, and that often sort of gets, gets the shoot, shoot, shoot out of your system and lets you get a feel for what you're doing. Even if you're not chimping, just, just doing a bunch of shooting. I mean, I guess right. you could have an empty film camera too. <laughs> and you, you could click away. I mean, I did that the other day, actually. I, I remember that I had to use up some film in a camera that I'm tr- I'm thinking of selling, and I went out and I photographed. I probably took about forty shots in the garden before I realized there wasn't any film in there. You know, like, well, this that. is the never-ending roll of film. Yeah, and I didn't really mind because it's stuff I photographed before, and I'll photograph it again. And the whole time I was imagining how nice these images would be. I I was in my fantasy world. I had Portrait 400 in this camera. <laughs> The color right. was really nice. You know, the light was right. good. It was uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I've done that before. In fact, um, one of the um, – uh, I'm borrowing your um, Fuji uh, XE3. Is that right? XE2. XE2. Um, XE2. And it has the ability to behave absolutely normally if it does not have a card in it. Um, so (laughs) it gives you no (laughs) warning, um, which is fine, which is fine. That's my error. It's not the the camera's error. It it does actually, I think it gives you a warning if you you first turn it on, um, if you're looking at it when you turn it on, which, you know, I, I have, uh, I have the back screen, um, off, um, when I, when I've shot with it and I, and to tell you the truth, I have not taken it out and experimented with it. Right now, what I'm doing mostly is digitizing negatives with it or digitizing lumens with it. Well, um, when we get to the end of this episode, uh, yeah. I think you're going to be inspired to take it out. Because sure. it's a yeah. really excellent, those little mirrorless cameras are great. Um, so do you want to start this uh, episode? Yeah, let's start the Homemade Camera Podcast. Well, so we're going to talk about adapted lenses, and and it's it's. I'd like to broaden that as much as possible. So I'm defining adapting a lens as putting any lens in front of a different film or sensor than it's was designed for originally, uh, or on a camera it wasn't designed to be used on uh, originally. And all of those, to me, to my mind, are basically amount to adapting a lens. 
And the the place I started in down this road into making my own cameras was with adapting classic older lenses, you know, from flea markets and such onto a digital mirrorless camera, Fuji X-Pro1 and then an X-C2. And those cameras are great because with a very short flange back distance, there's space to add an adapter between the camera and most lenses out there uh, for any camera from the past because they really have the shortest flange back distances, you know, even shorter than than uh, rangefinders like a Leica. So you can fit an adapter to mount just about any lens on the camera. Uh, and that's a lot of fun. And one of the reasons I think it's so appealing to people who use digital cameras is that after a while, you get bored with the same sensor. You know, with a film camera, you can change film and have a whole new experience. But with a digital camera, the, you start to feel like all the pictures are looking the same after a while. And you can monkey with them in, in post-processing to some extent, but it's not really, that's kind of in a way that's getting away from the, the photographic experience. I mean, I like a lot of post-processing myself, but it starts to be more like painting or drawing and less like taking a picture, you know, once you've, once you've gotten away from kind of what the camera delivered. So that's a long way to say, uh, one of the most effective ways to get variety if you shoot digital is to change your lenses. Um, and start sure. using funny, funny lenses that, that alter the appearance of the image. What, and there was also just the fun of using them because a lot of the old lenses are beautifully made and, and nice to handle and, and all that too. One of the things, but, oh, oh, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. One more thing just is that, and, when, and then from there, once you get into making your own cameras, it's all about adapting lenses because you, you know, there was no, you're making a new camera that didn't have any lens that went with it. And so, uh, that, and and that, you're using a lens becomes... that was designed for a specific application for a different application. And 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 so we are uh you know when you're making a homemade camera as long as it is a lens camera you are essentially adapting. Um there's a there's one technical thing um and then another technical um point I want to uh bring up. And that is um if you want to use a lens on a camera um, that is other than the one that's designed for, it needs to either be absolutely, I well, it can't be identical. It has to be very close to, or, okay, the, yeah, let me, let me say it this way. The lens has to have a longer flange back distance than the, camera system that you are putting it on was designed for so for instance well, except with ex there are exceptions to that yeah you can there are some you lens, can use yeah. you can use specialized adapters yeah to adapt a lens that is meant to be uh closer than it can be on a certain camera but there's always a penalty uh, because the way it does it it essentially is changing the angle of view of the lens and crop very often it means cropping the image to a smaller, uh, smaller field of view than it would the lens is meant to have. Right. Um, so that was that was one element um, that I was, uh, you know, one of the two technical things that I wanted to talk about. The other one has to do with uh, it, it is a basic concept of why we would do this. And uh, it comes down to, to 
uh, the idea that when people, when companies, um, put out new lenses, the, um, reviews about the quality of that lens are almost always weighted towards the ability to render fine detail, the sharpness of the lens. And that is, well, a sharpness of a lens is certainly an important factor. It is not the only factor, but new lenses have to have that sharpness in order to be uh, considered in the marketplace right now, because that's the reviewing process. The reviewers, with a few ex- uh, with a few notable exceptions coming from Lomography and a few right. Russian suppliers, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. So so look at um, when I shot uh, digital. One of my favorite lens companies um, was Samyang, and Samyang sells under Rokinon and Bauer, and you know a ton of different brands, but. Uh, the Rokinon is probably their premier brand. And you can also get them Samyang branded. Yeah, actually, they're, I think they're identical. Oh, they're all identical. Yeah, absolutely. Right. They're all identical. Well, one of they right now are not interested in making a lens with character. They are interested in making a lens that is sharp and that is sharper than, you know, that's the whole point. That's the selling point. It is sharper than Zeiss, you know, whatever. Um, and, um, you know, once again, in, unless you're shooting um, and then cropping a very small portion of your image, yeah, who cares? It, they're all sharp enough. And they've all generally been sharp enough for a very long time. You just have to find the right aperture for where they're sharp, Right. So, um, so if we go back in time, we can find lenses that were designed with different characteristics and, um, you know, different flaws. We're looking for those flaws. So that's a really good reason to start, uh, start adapting. Um, so what, what is your, um, if, if you want to, uh, you talked about getting a different look. Uh, and probably, and, and a big part of my argument is you won't get a different look from a modern lens because a modern lens is all about sharpness. Um, well, that's that's one that's true when we're talking about um, pretty much true when we're talking about sharpness. But there, are, modern lenses give different looks too. And I think that the the final thing is a point that I had recently. I listen quite often to the classic lenses podcast with Simon Forster and uh, you know Johnny and Carl those guys, and they they're mostly adapt. They use they do shoot film, but they are coming from the adapted lens. You know, classic lens being used on a digital camera kind of background, and that they really they really uh, kind of stress this thing of of the feeling that you get from an image, but also that you can't generalize about a lens. You always have to talk about a lens in relation to the media it's being used with. So in other words, some lenses look really amazing uh, on digital and just look the same, you know, Joe average when you use them with film and some lenses are amazing on film and just don't work out well on digital. And, or they work uh, better with one uh, camera or another camera. 
Uh, right, and it's sort of a classic example is that uh, the yeah. old uncoated lenses are. Some people think they're better for black and white than modern coated lenses, uh, where, whereas an uncoated lens will often give strange colors, which you, you might like, but it might also make it hard to, you know, to, to do color photography. So, it you can never talk about a lens in isolation from the system it's on, and that's one of the reasons that this this whole topic gets incredibly complicated and. Right. One of the reasons that I end up holding on to funky lenses because they may not have worked on one camera, but they might turn out to be fantastic on another one. And it takes a lot of experimenting to find that, find that out. And, and that brings me to another reason to use old lenses and to, and to adapt them onto cameras, uh, which is that you can create a, a, a really, a fairly massive system of parts that can be interchanged among a much wider range of cameras than you can if you're sticking to the traditional idea that you buy into one brand and one system and you know right. has to has to have the native bayonet mount as soon as you and, and i wanted to bring up you were mentioning flange back distance and, and i talked about special adapters uh, that that allow you to use a lens designed for a camera with a much shorter flange back distance but there's also another way to use those lenses um if you use for instance uh for instance, as an example, Pentax has a long flange back distance. So there are very few lenses you can use from other single lens reflex 35 millimeter cameras with an adapter because it's what the problem is, is that if you fit an adapter in there, you can't get infinity focus on the Pentax camera. Right. Uh, but you can use that lens for close up photography. So there's always that uh, as well as another workaround. Um, it's no different, you know, adding an adapter when the lens is meant to be closer to the camera is the same as using an extension tube. It just gives you a much narrower range of focus that only works up close. You don't have infinity focus anymore, but it's still a way to use the lens on a different camera. So, And, and there are plenty of people who uh, are not spending their time at infinity focus. Um, yeah. And uh, a lot of those, uh, it, it depends. There there is also the possibility of stopping down and bringing infinity focus within the hyperfocal distance. Yep. That, um, that can often work too. Uh, so um, th there is that possibility. You just have to, you know, experiment and, and see whether it's within, uh, within the range. And it's very easy to tell if you're, if you're looking at adapters and you can't remember what flange back distances are involved. If the adapter is just a tube with nothing in it, then it's going to work. It's going to, you know, usually that means it's going to work to achieve infinity focus. Mm -hmm. But if you look into the adapter and you see there's a lens in there, that lens is there because it's designed to adapt a camera where the flange back distance doesn't work. And what that lens is going to do is it's going to refocus the light to create a sharp image at infinity, but as I mentioned before, it's also going to change the effect of focal length so that the image will be cropped. And adding that extra piece of glass may degrade image quality as well. Now that might, it's interesting, that's an issue that I have found with using uh, old lenses on digital cameras, but I bet that it's less of an issue shooting film. And it might be that my prejudice against those adapters that have that extra piece of glass and allow you to put, you know, say a... Uh, you know, a rangefinder lens on a Pentax camera 
maybe it's not as big a deal with film. I just haven't really experimented with that. So it's worth a try. One of the, uh, uh, now I was a, a Canon person in my digital days and I still lean towards Canon, um, as a brand, uh, just simply because of how much time I've used them. Uh, and I'm familiar with them and they, they're easy in my hand and, you know, all that type of stuff. Uh, but I remember, um, the, uh, the flangeback distance on the EOS lenses, which were, are their autofocus system, uh, is further out mm -hmm. than right. with their manual system, the F FDFL lenses. So you can't get before. infinity in focus with any of those old lenses on a modern camera, it, camera, yeah. Except it, unless you use one of the adapters with some glass in it. And I never, you know, I was looking at doing that because I had a bunch of old Canon lenses. And uh, the reaction, when I went looking for the information, the reaction was, well, you can't do that because you're ending up with that other piece of glass and it's a low quality piece of glass because it's not engineered by Canon. Um, you know, and I'm sure Canon had an adapter, but it was 300 bucks, you know, something like that. And they'd rather you, they'd rather you bought $4,000 worth of new lenses. I mean, right. Huh. Exactly. So, uh, you know, that's part of it. Um, and, um, uh, so, you know, it, it would be worth going back to maybe some of those old Canon lenses on new Canon devices. And certainly, uh, Canon now has that full frame mirrorless system. Uh, I don't know if it's out or it's coming out, but it was. No, it's out. It's out. It's out. Okay. Yep. And they, and they're all about the adapters. And when we get farther down on our discussion, we'll talk about types of adapter and get back into some of this, uh, some of this territory yeah. again. Um, I, I think in a way I'd like to start talking about lenses. Okay. Um, and are there any, uh, lenses that you have i know you haven't done this as much as i have but are there any lenses you have adapted uh yeah mind? well one of the things um i love shooting wide and i love shooting ridiculously wide um and so uh when i got the xe2 um i looked at you know what were my widest lenses and my widest lenses were for the um olympus om system um, and so, uh, and I have, you know, and they make a decent 50. Um, uh, and so I, w I was trying to get, um, really actually into the 40, uh, range and, um, that's a 28 millimeter lens, but I have a 24 for it. So, uh, so the OM on the XE2 is what I've done the most. Yeah. It's a good combination. Um, Except for, um, uh, I have one, uh, I have three M, uh, Leica M mount cameras. I have, um, uh, the, an M2, I have a, um, CL and mm -hmm. I have, um, the, uh, Voigtlander, uh, Bessa R3M, the Cosina Voigtlander Bessa R3M. And of those three cameras, I also have three different lenses, only one of which is an M mount lens. It's the one that came with the CL. It's the 40 millimeter, uh, Sumicron. Is it Sumicron? 
Um, sure. And uh, it's, you know, the other two that I have are thread mount, you know, like a thread mount. And uh, they're both Russian lenses. So, I mean, that right there, and it uses a little tiny adapter that just slips in there. Um, and so I actually, you know, for a, you know, on film cameras, I've been, you know, that's, those are kind of my workhorse, um, lenses are the, uh, are those two adapted lenses. Now that's a small, small adjustment. You know, these are, uh, you know, lenses that are made to work on that, uh, on that system. Um, but you know, when, when like a, switch from the Leica thread mount to the Leica M mount. I think it, I think it's one millimeter closer flange distance on the M mount so that they could use those adapters. Right. And Um, the adapters just, it's virtually flush. Um, Right. Right. It screw, it, it locks into the bayonet and creates a threaded mouth, uh, which is almost flush. So yeah, it hardly makes any difference. And then you can get the same type of adapter for Pentax, uh, which also switched from a screw mount to a bayonet mount right. and and made sure that it was backward compatible with old lenses. And one of the reasons I like both Leica Thread and M42 and Pentax K mount is because of that, because it means that you can use the same lenses on a, quite a large variety of different cameras by a lot of different makers. And yeah, uh, it, it's that's really a, a great feature. Um, one and one of the things that I've done is um I've used M mount lenses on homemade like wooden boxes, wooden box cameras. Mm-hmm. And you just screw them right in, yeah. Well well <laughs> what I've what I've done is uh I've actually or uh, um I use the 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 M forty two to K mount uh adapter and and mounted the K mount adapter, you know, the the one for the M42 screw thread into the wood and then mm-hmm. just and use that as as the mount, which gives yeah. a, a really nice um yep. threaded uh mount there. Well, and you can you can follow that approach to create your own uh kind of camera bayonet mount with any using any adapter. So we're going to talk about a zillion kinds of adapters and Many of them can be purchased very cheaply, uh, you know, even used for sometimes, you know, just a couple bucks. And it's usually a plastic tube with, you know, some sort of bayonet on one end or screw thread on, you know, on each end. And you can just, you could just literally glue that onto a box and there's your, you know, your perfect mount for that lens system. So, yeah, I think it's a, a good way to go. And then if you, if you purposely build your homemade camera with a short flange back distance, and start with one of these standard mounts, um, then you can just use standard adapters on, mm-hmm. on your homemade camera to use a huge range of lenses. So that that's a another great thing about them. Uh, you know, so for instance, you could put a you know a Fuji X mount bayonet on on your homemade camera, and then use all the same adapters to go to all the same other lenses as you would be able to use on your uh, on your digital camera. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's an interesting idea. There are, it does bring up some of the other issues, though, because when you get into modern lenses, they often have a, a, a need to communicate electronically with their parent camera. And this is another reason why old lenses work better, because they're all mechanical. You've got an aperture built into the lens that works just by turning a dial. It doesn't need to speak to the camera. Um, there are some fancy adapters now that will 
allow you to control some of those things, um, but it's it it's getting you know away from simple and into into complicated. One of the things um, uh, within uh, the just the mechanical lenses is there are some mechanical lenses, you know, the auto diaphragm, um, where by default you take it off um, off your camera, and by default that the diaphragm opens wide, ready for right. you to focus. And it's only at the point of shutter release where there's a mechanical lever that stops that lens down and then releases it uh, for your next focusing opportunity. Um, and, the, and, and there the, are some there are some that are not controllable. Um, uh, so there are, but... Y- they're usually because it's electronic. So usually yeah. if it's mechanical, there's a little lever somewhere on the back of the lens that, that is operated by the camera. And a lot of the adapter people have figured out that if they put a catch in the right spot, oh, um, yes. it will yeah, sure. it will put it into stop-down mode when you mount it on the adapter and, and solve that problem. So that, that is something to watch for. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is usually a simple solution for it. Well, so we're talking about different lenses. So you, you're using some old Russian lenses on a digital camera, and that creates a very different kind of image. Now, you wouldn't have as much experience as I do, but I have several modern Fuji lenses that I've used on the camera alone to you. And that you get very different results when you start going to the older designs of lens with, you know, less coatings or different designs or different, you know, less layers of glass and all of that. Um, and it it can be really interesting. It can be a lot of fun to to play with some of the older lenses. And you also mentioned using a twenty four millimeter mm-hmm. on that APS-C sensor camera, which gives you a field of view of equivalent to a thirty five millimeter right uh, on a full frame camera. Which is it's a very useful uh, field of view, but it does bring up one of the issues when you're adapting a wide lens onto a, anything smaller than the format it was designed for it will give you a field of view that's smaller. And so the hardest thing to find are, you know, really wide lenses that are going to work. Um, with And with give a, you a wide angle And give you a wide effect. field of view with a, that smaller sensor size or smaller film size. So that's that's where I find that, that you know, you have the most work is finding good wide lenses that will work for you. Um, and then it gets even worse when you get into medium and large format where... Um, uh, getting a you know a really wide lenses start to be hard to find and expensive. Um, right. So, One uh, of the uh, I have done a couple of um, not myself, uh, but I purchased a um, oh I forget what it's a T forty three lens and it's a, a forty millimeter f four um, that. Uh, was on a bunch of Russian cameras made by Lomo, the mm-hmm. real Lomo. Yeah, I think I have the same lens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I have one that's adapted to a, like a thread mount. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the problem with that is, uh, you know, I can use it then on a like a thread mount adapter onto um, the um, uh, the Fuji uh, XE. XE2, um, but the the problem is that it it won't push the focusing uh, cam that you use on a rangefinder. So 
I have to right. figure out um I have to figure out a scale focusing system and and you know then I have to you know uh, I have to go through that whole process to make sure that I you know have anything in focus at all um and that and that brings up another whole issue with if you're using a lens with an adapter that changes the flangeback distance then your focusing scale is probably not going to work right. anymore. Right, right, exactly. So even, even a lens that comes with its own helical and a focusing scale is not necessarily going to work unless you get it exactly the same distance from yes. the sensor or the film as it was intended to be. So there's a lot of advantages in working with those kinds of lenses. So even mo- normal rangefinder lenses and single-lens reflex lenses and even me- a lot of medium for- format lenses will come with a helical and can be mounted the right distance. And that solves a lot of problems. Um, but it is fun to push the boundaries. And I've started putting large format lenses on small cameras and things like that, where it's really um, not what was intended. And there you start to have to, you have to figure out, you know, either you have to see through the lens to focus, or you have to figure out your own scale and your own helical and, you know, get all those problems solved. But it right. can be worth it uh, because there are some spectacular lenses. And, I've gotten enough sort of pieces and parts now that I just don't really want to buy anything else. I want to keep recombining what I have to figure out what it can do, which is going to take me a long time, you know, to try right. all the different combinations of of things. And um, and kind of part of this is is you can break down all these lenses into into certain eras because you know pe- it's like people figure out technology to a certain point and then it, it reaches a plateau and they'll, everything will be similar for some period of time and then there'll be a breakthrough and. The way I see it is, well, there's the very old lenses, the original brass and glass. Yeah. So you know, what's the what's the oldest that were, what's the oldest that were, lens that you have? So the, my oldest lenses are probably only from I'd say the 30s. Um, okay. Uh, and but you know I know I know there are people out there shooting through some of the original Petzval type lenses, and there are modern copies of them being made, which have these very different characteristics they were they were designed by trial and error by these you know brilliant original lens designers and they're pretty amazing but they have very strong they have a lot of character let's say you know they they have a certain look that you there's no overcoming it there's no way you can make a modern looking image with those lenses they have their own thing and then in the in the middle like beginning of the 20th century there started to be uh, lenses that start to look like modern lenses in that you have, you know, pretty much the whole area of the image will be relatively sharp if you stop down enough. And, uh, you know, the, they're fairly contrasty, but they still don't have coatings. We're talking mm-hmm. about before World War II, a lot of the lenses um, were uncoated. And that means that they were, you know, a lot more prone to flare. So that can be a, a thing you, lo- you want where you can point your lens towards the light and get all kinds of strange effects that you may, you may actually find appealing. And also they would tend to be less predictable with colors uh, is one way to put it. Yeah. So, um, so, Although, so that's a whole characteristic of those lenses that can be appealing um, and interesting. So and um, you, you they, said, yeah. you said your earliest lenses are from the thirties. Are those right. uh, like from folders? Um, yeah. Folding cameras, which I happen okay. to love. And so I have, uh, I have a, a Voigtlander Bessa 66 that my uncle, my great uncle sent me that was belonged to my belonged to my great uncle's father. 
I'm pretty sure he bought it new in like 1936. Uh-huh. And it's, you know, it sat in a drawer for many decades and came to me perfectly functional. And it has an old triplet lens. So three diff- three lens elements that are separated by air. They're not even glued together. Mm-hmm. Very simple lens. But it's a great lens. It makes beautiful images that have a very um, special quality, very old-fashioned feel just every time you use it. And so I like that that a lot. And it's interesting that one of the things that happens is that those old designs survived, I would say, up to the 50s, because even after more advanced lenses were widespread, they would still be put in the cheaper cameras. The older style lenses would still right. be put in the cheaper cameras. So you can often find a fairly new camera with that older flavor. An example is I have a, a Zeiss Icon Icoflex. So it's a twin lens reflex that Zeiss made. And it has an old triplet lens because it was the lower end, less expensive version of the camera. And I love it. It makes wonderful images that are in some ways more interesting than than newer, sharper uh, lenses on the same type of camera. So... That's another, you know, you can't just look only at the date something was made, but also you want to look at the design and, and often the lower end versions of some of the old lenses have more character and become in a way more desirable. So that's an interesting. Sure. And then, uh, uh, so World War II was a turning point, um, and the whole industry shifted from, you know, Europe to Japan and all those things happened after World War II. Right after the war though, there's an interesting kind of pause, 1950s is sort of my favorite era for old cameras and lenses mm-hmm. because uh, coatings had come in. So a lot of these lenses had modern style coatings. So they work well with color and, you know, they're easier to shoot in, in, in uh, pointing towards the sun and that kind of thing. And, but they and... were often still a fairly old-fashioned design. So there's this kind of perfect balance between these old-fashioned flavor but cameras that work with modern films that and... I, I really find appealing. And that's the rise of the Soviet era um, mm-hmm. lens. Right. Um, the you know uh, <clears throat> the, one of the things that happened at the end of World War II was that um, all of those German companies lost the rights to their inter- intellectual property. So that's the reason why there are so many Leica copies that came out in the fifties. It's because well, Leica when they no they won some had... court cases eventually, but all that the the Russians just changed the names of stuff and kept well, them going, right? So, the yeah. the Russians, yeah, you're absolutely <laughs> right. Um, the Russians did, but but the Japanese camera industry, um, uh, you know, essentially copied those designs based on the fact that they could legally do it, right? Um, as and then, opposed of course, to the Russians didn't, right? At that time, the Soviets, let's say that, not the Russians, the right. Soviets didn't yes. didn't care at all about intellectual property the property it was all property of the state right um so uh you know it it so that they were going to copy no matter what um but uh that rise uh of the um you know of the german designs that that were made in the soviet union you know um my oldest lens is a uh, Jupiter three, which is a 50 millimeter F 1.5, um, that, uh, the serial number, uh, says it's a night, you know, it's from 1953 and, um, which is long enough after 
the um the machinery was moved out of um uh Germany and into the Soviet Union um that they had their production um running at a high quality um and it, it the Jupiter 3 is just a beautiful lens and it's and it's my main lens on my um on my uh Leica bodies uh other mm-hmm. than the Summicron for the CL because it's a small lens on a small body but um the uh, you know that when I first got it, it was just like, it was a huge revelation that you could get all of these, it, just wonderful contrast, just a little bit of like edge flanging, um, uh, on certain objects. Uh, but yet it was sharp and mm-hmm. you know, it's, um, it, it really is a, a fantastic all around camera. Yeah, it's that's kind of how I, I characterize. Wish it was a I characterize that era, especially the '50s, as a time when lenses were sharp and clear and, and effective, but still had a lot of that old-fashioned character. And that's right. That's kind of a, a perfect balance for for me. And I also really like the, the camera designs from that era, but that's a separate topic. Uh, but the glass, especially, is appealing. And yeah. there are all these. Uh, there's also a the beginning of more systems starting to really start up in the fifties and into the sixties. So more, more different cameras with interchangeable lenses. So that's also a help when it comes to adapting, you don't have to make your own adapter or, you know, set up the camera to, to take a lens in a shutter or whatever, which can be done, but it's just a, you know, a bunch of extra uh, tinkering that you need to do. If you're using, you know, the old lenses that came in a shutter. Right. Um, one nice thing about some of those old lenses, though, from folding cameras, I, I don't recommend destroying folding cameras. I think they're wonderful and should be preserved. But but you do find ones that are beyond repair. And yeah, then the right lens, away. The lenses are tiny. They have a shutter. And they're designed for a long flangeback distance. So you can adapt mm-hmm. them to, you know, practically anything uh, except for, you know, medium format, single lens reflex. But you wouldn't bother him. There'd be no point <laughs> right. in doing that. But uh but so they're they're a whole other interesting area, and you know we've already talked about the whole issue of shutters. If you get beyond shutters, it opens up a huge. Uh, if you've got a shutter in your body, then you can start looking at all the all the barrel lenses and you know, larger lenses, and you know the things that don't have uh, built-in shutters, mm-hmm. and uh, they can fit on all sorts of mounts, and that gets really interesting. Anyway, so then the 60s and 70s, that's the rise of the single-end reflex and the the system camera, where there starts to be a zillion different focal lengths for every brand, and a lot of interchangeable parts, and a lot of adapters, and extension rings, and gadgets, and there's just this massive proliferation of, of the kind of thing that makes adapting lenses more practical. So there's that, and the 60s is an interesting time, because it you're starting to have brand new lens designs, a lot of them coming out of Japan, um, but still from Germany as well, that are, you know, more advanced. So they have more modern, uh, maybe uh, versatility, but they still have an, some old-fashioned character. And I think a lot of a lot of people end up fixating on certain particular lens families, like the the Super Tacomars from Pentax, that were kind of incredibly well-made, beautiful, beautiful optics that were right straddling kind of the the new and the old in a different way than the 50s ones I was talking about, but still have some of that old, you know, wonderful old-fashioned qualities, but, you know, but they're designed 
pretty much like any other modern 20th century lens, uh, a manual focus lens. So, so then there's that era. So the 60s and 70s era, there are a lot of wonderful all manual lenses. And then the 80s and 90s, I don't know much about. I, I was still using an old 1970s camera through all the way up until 2000. Well, so I kind of missed all that. But a lot of that is yeah. kind of polluted for me by, by autofocus, which makes lenses much harder to adapt and use on the wrong camera. And Yeah, so um, yeah. I, I did, I had um, in college, um, I had um, a Minolta X370, uh, though it was the uh, European branded X7A. It's the same camera. Yeah, um, And um, so that was a... Uh, you know, the body itself was an electronic body. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it only, it had shutter aperture or shutter. Yeah. It had shutter aperture priority. Yes. Shutter let's priority. try that again. <laughs> you know, it had aperture priority. Um, it did, aperture priority. Okay. And, um, it, you know, and so from that point of view, it was very convenient. Um, and, it, and the lens, um, those MD lenses from that range, uh, I have quite a bit of experience when I got back into film. Uh, I went through a, a, a large run of Minolta cameras. Um, and I still have, uh, an X370 actually sitting behind me. It's, um, when I have students who express an interest in film, I want to be able to, uh, get them a camera, you know, a $25 camera. And, uh, and that's, uh, one of the, one of the easiest to get in that range with a lens. And, and it's nice to use. Yeah, yeah. And it really is a nice camera system. Yeah. It's got a bright, clear viewfinder and right. simple to shoot. And yeah, that's right. one of my favorite cheap cameras. I, I have never paid more than $15 for one, but yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're not, they're a bargain and they do break, but for $15, it's not that big a deal. So, right. They're right, a, they're exactly. A good, they're a, definitely a good choice, and yeah, Minolta lenses are also underpriced. Um, they they have yeah. a lot of they're beautiful, beautiful glasses, and and I've found that those MD lenses and the, even the MC older MC lenses from Minolta uh, work really, really well. At least on the Fuji digital sensor, um, they just seem to be able. They have they have plenty of resolution. They transmit color really well. They just seem to work great on on digital camera so. yeah i need to uh i need to get a, an adapter for that because i have i have quite a few uh minolta lenses so oh well they're they're gonna be great on that camera I've, yeah i've tried a lot of them on it and i like them a lot yeah you know, they're a little big you know uh-huh. um they're a little bulky the lenses but that may be part of why they're good because they they they're gathering a lot of light and they, they're definitely they didn't spend a lot of extra money on glass for no reason you know <laughs> right and so they, they seem to work pretty well. Um, and then the other thing, of course, too, is that when you adapt your uh, single-end reflex lenses to that Fuji, which has a smaller sensor, you're also using the sharper center area of the lens. And most lenses are have their best performance near the middle. And so when you adapt a lens to a smaller format, it usually means your image is going to look better around the edges. Um, and that's an advantage. So you're losing some field of view, but you're picking up some consistency now you may not want that uh, but if you do that's one way to get it right so okay that covers the rough idea of the range and then one thing about these eras we're talking about is that some 
some of these designs live on. So, so you can still buy modern, brand new Russian lenses that have the exact same design as they did in the fifties. Um, and that's great. I mean, there, and then there are, and, and some that they designed in the sixties and seventies are still available brand new today, um, out of the, the former Soviet Union. Um, there are Lomos producing some old fashioned lenses still. Uh, some of the Voigtlander lenses that they make for rangefinder cameras, uh, Cosina, Cosina, however you pronounce it mm-hmm. in Japan, makes uh, some much, they're modern lenses, but they have a, a little bit more of an old fashioned design. And those are also really great. So, so some of these things break out of the, the time period that they were, uh, you know, that I'm associating them with in this rough rundown, but it, it gives you a rough idea of, uh, the different kind of flavors. And the other one that kind of trans transcends all this are large format lenses, uh, reached a very high level pretty early on because they didn't have as many problems to solve because you were moving the whole lens back and forth to focus. Um, you didn't have to add extra optical shenanigans to, to make the you know, the consistent flange back distance work, which you'd required for system cameras. So they were free to use more symmetrical designs so that essentially more primitive designs gave higher quality results with those lenses. And so those reached a very high level pretty early on. And so most of them, if you can find one with a working shutter going back for many, many decades are going to give really high quality results. I have some that are old enough that they do have a bit of an old fashioned feel but it's not they don't feel you don't feel handicapped in any way they're they're really really uh, good lenses and uh there are modern large format lenses that reach a whole new level um, but they're extremely expensive and i have no experience with them so i don't know much about those but i think they're mostly designed for extremely high resolution use and that's what that's all about Okay, so I wanted to talk about different kinds of adapter. Um, we've sort of got some idea of why we want to mess around with different lenses using the wrong lenses. <laughs> we, the basic the basic adapter is just a tube with a, something at, you know at the back end that will connect to a camera and something at the other end that'll connect to a lens. And so you can shop for ones to match up, you know, any combination of lens and camera, almost anything imaginable. Uh, there are some cameras that there aren't many adapters for, and usually it's because that because it had an extra long flange back distance or some other issue. Um, it just made it impractical to adapt. So an example would be Hasselblad. There are very few adapters that fit Hasselblad cameras because the way those were set up it was almost impossible to use anything but a lens designed specifically for that camera. And so they just didn't bother to, to, no one's bothered to make adapters for them. I have found a way around that, um, making your own adapter by, Mm -hmm. uh, taking, you can, you can attach a bayonet mount for, for Hasselblad onto something like a, you know, a helical or a tube or a a way to mount a lens, um, and, and get around that. Your, by creating your own adapter. Um, and, and the uh, reason I did that is because I happen to have a broken Hasselblad that, yeah. that 
that doesn't work with Hasselblad lenses, but it does work as just like a passive box with film in it. So I've been attaching other lenses to it. And with, you know, a 3D printer, you can quickly make them. Um, yeah. Uh, but, you know, you... And you have yeah. done the, the most basic form of adapting of all, which is free lensing, where you just use your right. hand as the adapter. <laughs> right. And uh, and that's surprisingly effective. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, I found uh, some pretty good results with that, uh, amazingly enough. Uh, I always thought that there would be a, a little bit too much, um, I guess, light leakage in, um, but uh, it's it's not really that much of a factor uh or it hasn't been so far and i've done that with um uh bronica lenses um onto uh film cameras uh so uh film slrs and that's and one of the things when you're well. yeah when you're rummaging through boxes of junk in and flea markets and thrift stores one of the things you'll find most common is a type of adapter that people bought in large numbers in the old days called a teleconverter mm -hmm. and what it does is it it adds some length but it also refocuses the light coming out of a lens so that it'll work at a longer focal length and what it does is usually they're a one and a half or a two times teleconverter and they'll basically effectively double the focal length of, of any lens that you mount on them and it was a way that people could kind of create a telephoto so you could stick your 50 millimeter lens and it would turn it into a 100 millimeter lens. Um, what it really did was push it farther out from the camera and then refocus the image on the film. And there's usually some image quality lost and the, but they can be really fun and useful. And the other thing is that they're dirt cheap and really common. So they're a great source of uh, parts to make bayonet mounts, to make adapters and uh, there's a whole series of them that have a built-in helical, and they're called macro-focusing teleconverters. And the, those were purposely used to not only increase the focal length of the lens, but make it possible to focus it through some range and use it as some, you know, as a bit of a macro lens. Uh, um, you, you know, it's a limited range, but you can it gives you some control of focus. Mm -hmm. So that's another uh, source of parts. So you could simply use that as a a helical in building your own camera. And they're, I mean, they were like $1 things in the right thrift store, you know, they're, and they're very common. Right. And usually the, uh, the bayonet mount parts are just screwed on. So you could take them right off and, and screw it onto a box and there's your, you know, there's your camera. Right. Uh, mount. So th they're really worth looking out for. So that's one, that's a, a teleconverter. There's also the opposite. And these are a newer uh, idea that you can buy from a few suppliers and they're called focal reducers. And a focal reducer does the opposite. It decreases the effective focal length of a lens. Um, and the reason you would want that is if you have, say, an APS-C digital camera and you want to use regular 35-millimeter uh, lenses on it at their designed field of view, a focal reducer reverses um, oh. the cropping effect. It, it, it expands the image. So normally the image that was is projected by putting that wrong lens on the on the smaller format camera is it would crop the um the image and what this focal reducer does is it takes all the light coming out of the back of the lens and it, and it focuses it that whole area down onto the smaller format so you have the same effective field of view and there's a side effect 
A typical focal reducer for converting a 35 millimeter lens to APS-C format, it it adds a full stop of light because it's taking all that light and shining it on oh, a smaller sure. area. So you not only get a a lens that a 50 millimeter lens will look like a 50 millimeter field of view on your APS-C camera, it'll also raise it from let's say an f2 to an f you know 1.7 or 1.4, and that's really great. I mean, it's a real a genuine bonus. And the better quality ones are apparently, according to people I trust, uh, don't do any harm at all to the quality of the, the image. So they're an interesting thing. I don't own one. They're a little bit expensive. Um, it hasn't been that important to me. But if you are someone who really likes to adapt lenses to a smaller format um, APS-C camera, then they do give you the advantage of being able to use those wider lenses that are hard to find at their uh-huh. design field of view. Um, and that, that can be a real bonus. That can be a real plus. And that's, and that's one of the biggest uh, problems with using um, 35 millimeter uh, lenses designed for 35 millimeter uh, SLRs on APS-C cameras is you can it telephoto is no problem because of the image crop, right? A 50 millimeter mm-hmm. lens, which is nominally normal on uh, on a 35 millimeter camera, is uh, telephoto on. Yeah, it's a, an it becomes APS-C. a perfect portrait lens on your right. on your XC2, which well, is actually a kind of great because portrait lenses are expensive and 50 millimeter lenses are cheap. So right. The problem that's actually is, a bonus. The problem is when you want something wide. When you when you, when you something yeah absolutely when you want something wider you want something normal. Um, right. You are in a, a much more difficult uh, situation. So well, I don't think normal isn't such a problem because your twenty eight millimeter gives you the equivalent of forty, which is the true normal, and then uh, a thirty five millimeter, which is pretty common, is going to be. The equivalent of a 50 millimeter norm that the longer normal so those are fairly easy to find it's as soon as you want to get wider than that that you run into trouble um and you know true truly wide feel, feel feeling lenses so one way around that is to get one of these speed speed boosters and they the good ones like from a company like metabones cost a few hundred dollars but and so you want to really pay attention before you buy one you want to figure out what's the right one to get so, for instance, you might think, oh, I'll get one for the Fuji because you li- like the camera, you own it. Mm-hmm. The problem is that the one designed for the Fuji will only work on a Fuji. But if you bought, for instance, one designed for a Canon, which has a short, a relatively short flangeback distance in the 35 millimeter world, you would then have to use a Canon to Fuji adapter. <laughs> right. To use it on the Fuji, but, you know, if you can put up with having two adapters connected to each other, it opens up the possibility to use it on a variety of other cameras. So it's worth kind of figuring out the math of, well, if I get this adapter and combine it with this other adapter, you know, how many combinations can I get out of it? Um, it's something to consider anyway. Uh, sure. I haven't gotten into it, as I pointed out, because I've just, I didn't want to spend the money and I didn't. It hasn't turned out to be a real problem. Like, you know, I've got one or two wide lenses that work on the camera, and that's fine. You know, don't worry. I'm not too concerned about that. And with film, it's just not a thing. You know, you almost all of them are perfect with 35 millimeter lenses as it is. Uh, there's no real reason to use these except with digital cameras that have small sensors. Right. 
but they're very interesting and getting an extra stop of light is certainly uh, not to be sneezed at either one of um, the things that i've always wanted to own but have not yet owned is a tilt shift lens now there are some adapters that have yeah tilt shift yeah. built in right yep that's really great because tilt shift lenses are specialized and expensive and it with a tilt shift adapter then you can use the same adapter will turn a whole bunch of lenses into a tilt shift lens and that's really great so that's a useful thing that that exists and it's the same deal you kind of want to spend some time figuring out what fits with what and kind of draw up a chart for yourself before you just land on buying one that fits a certain camera you want maybe it'll turn out to be more convenient to get the one that fits your camera or maybe it'll turn out to be more convenient to get one that can fit a variety of a wider variety of other cameras so right something to look at um and then there's also a whole other range of adapters from the old days uh there's that whole series of universal adapters so there were some companies that made aftermarket lenses that they purposely made have a really long flange back distance so that they could adapt them to every other camera on the market and they used a specialized adapter that would fit the lens and then that adapter would fit ones that fit different cameras so oh once yeah you had, absolutely yeah wasn't yeah. tamron there, tamron made a, a yeah. very extensive series that fit practically every camera on the market at the time uh so you could buy one lens and switch cameras around which you know was exactly the opposite of what the camera companies wanted um but those have a pretty good reputation and so that's another whole world of adapters and then there's t-mount which is short for telescope mount and that was a threaded adapter that you can you can find them to fit most standard 35 millimeter bayonet mounts and probably some of the bigger ones as well so there's another whole range of old style adapters right uh and then of course you know all the extension tubes and bellows and all those things in, in a sense are adapters as well um, it's worth, worth looking at when you get into this whole uh, this whole rabbit hole So we've covered um, the basics, but uh, for the most part, you're best off using manual focus lenses, um, in, you know, adapting them because it's there's no there's no requirement for an electronic connection or special special mechanical connections to make the uh, focusing units work. Um, you know, so for instance, some of the old screw drive autofocus lenses, they're they some of them had a manual ring, but some of them there's no way to focus unless you and, have the right. And camera. I will of course argue that autofocus is the devil, so you need to stay away from it as yeah, much as and, you possibly right. can. Right, and it's it's more it's, it's some the part of the point of using these older lenses too is just the nice way they the old manual ones handle. They're, right, they're just so beautifully made, and they they're designed to be. They're designed to be easy to focus manually. So if you have to focus it manually, that's a real advantage. And uh, then I wanted to bring up another thing that I've been experimenting with. So I talked about, we've been talking about mostly adapting 35 millimeter or format lenses onto uh, different cameras with smaller or similar formats. But one thing I've started to do recently is to use medium format lenses on 35 millimeter film cameras. 
because it's the same advantage as when you use an SLR lens on an APS-C camera is that you're using the sharp middle of a very, very nice lens. And I just thought, hey, I'll try this out. Why not? And I had happened to stumble on an adapter to put uh, Mamiya 645 lenses onto Pentax camera, and I put it on a K1000 and went out and shot some film, and I was bowled over. It The results were so, so nice. The colors are fantastic, really sharp, clean images, just wonderful. And it was kind of exciting because I had really thought Pentax was a camera you couldn't adapt any lenses to. I was, because it's got a long flange back distance, I thought, well, that's it. You know, you can only use Pentax lenses, which is fine. They're good. But all of a sudden, you know, there's this whole other range of, of lenses that work. And one of the great things about this is that the lenses, the common cheap lenses off medium format are 80 millimeter, which right. is an expensive rare lens to get on a 35 millimeter camera. So uh, all of a sudden I bought a $40, 80 millimeter lens that just needed to have its uh, focusing helicoid lubed up. And I did that and, uh, and I had a perfectly good lens for very little money. That is extremely sharp, really great. Um, and now I'm using it on both Pentax and Nikon film cameras. Uh, instead of going out and spending at least a couple hundred bucks for, you know, an 85 millimeter lens at kind of the low end of the range for either of those cameras. So that's a kind of a whole new revelation for me. And, you know, you're not going to get wide angle lenses that way because a really wide lens for medium format is like 45 millimeters or, you know, maybe 35 um, millimeters, and that's not very wide. But for getting high-quality normal-to-long focal lengths, it's great way to right. go. Um, and it's just another thing I don't have to buy more of. Like, I have a normal lens on my medium-format camera, and now I've got a portrait lens for my 35 millimeter, and I don't need to buy yet another thing. You know, So the, I find adapters to be very, very good as a way to save save on money and objects in your possession because, you know, one adapter means all of a sudden a whole set of lenses will work on a, a whole other uh, set of cameras. So that's great. So pushing beyond that, I fooled around recently with using large format lenses on smaller cameras. Um, so far, I mostly have used them on uh, medium format by mounting, uh, basically finding a mounting a shutter directly onto a helical and then mounting the helical onto the medium format camera. And there are, we've talked about some of the sources of parts for doing that, but it's also something you can build yourself. It's just a matter of finding the right bits and pieces and sticking them together. Um, in one case, for instance, I, I just use some, some, uh, basically some hardening putty to <laughs> connect an old band right. onto a, onto a, a board. And it's not that it doesn't have to be rocket science. Because um, the large format lenses just need a hole the right size and you can uh, attach them on. One of the things um, that I did early on um, when I was doing uh, the franking cameras uh, was I would mount uh, a lens using an aluminum um, lens cone, you know, a pyramid, uh, essentially that I made out of sheet aluminum. Now... There are, uh, you, when you're building it, you have to make sure you know your flange distance when you do that. But it's mm -hmm. certainly, um, uh, a good acceptable way, uh, and it's a, an effective way 
to adapt, you know, uh, these high quality lenses, you know, mostly and it's large not as, format it's lenses. not as critical if, if you decide to do a fixed focus version where you're just going to set it at a hyperfocal, right. then you also have an easier target to hit because the hardest thing is getting infinity focus perfect. But if, if you're shooting for hyperfocal, then you've got a kind of a bigger window that you, you just need to get it in about the right place. Right. That certainly makes that easier. And then you don't need the helical and helicals take up space. Uh, so if you're trying to get a lens close enough to a film or sensor, it can often, often the only really good solution is to do away with focusing, get rid of that extra part and, you know, get your lens even closer in, um, especially with a wide angle right. that you need to get quite close, um, and then I just realized there's one other type of adapter that I didn't mention, and, and it kind of comes up in this category because there is a thing. Uh, so I probably already mentioned this in an earlier episode, but I invented a device and got all excited and was all ready to, you know, patent it. And then I Googled it and found out that it had, not only had already been invented, but you could buy them in China already. And that's something called a shift stitch adapter. And what it basically is, is it's a way to mount a camera on a sliding, uh, a sliding support, lightproof support, so that you can put a lens on the front and then slide the camera with a smaller sensor across the larger field oh, of light okay. of a bigger lens. So in this case, the one that I immediately purchased is designed to put a Mamiya 645 lens on the front and a Fuji digital camera on the back. And the way it's set up, the the image circle of that medium format lens can basically be covered by up to eight separate APS-C sized frames. Really? Yep. And so I can get pretty much a full six four five, full resolution, eight eight times sixteen megapixel image. <laughs> through that lens with that digital camera. And it does mean you have to take eight separate shots and stitch them together later in Photoshop. So it means if you have anything moving in the picture that it's going to perhaps create a weird effect. But it's not that big a deal. Like, for instance, shooting a landscape with the sea, you know, a boat going by is not necessarily going to make it from one frame to the next faster than I can shoot. So that's not necessarily a problem. Um, and I had fun with selfies. You can... You could have up to eight versions of yourself in the same picture. You know, there's all kinds of things you can do. And then, then there, you can also orient the camera horizontally and take a panoramic in six frames, which is also really appealing, um, almost even better. It's a way to get a high, a large format panoramic uh, landscape shot with your little APS-C digital camera. Mm -hmm. um, it takes a little time and trouble, but... You know, the whole setup is $200 as compared to, or you could build it yourself for nothing, as compared to, right. you know, $10,000 medium format camera that would give you the <laughs> same resolution. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. and, and I'm still, and I'm still using this $40, you know, lens that, that, that I, fits an M, you know, uh, Mamiya 645 camera. So right. this is a really interesting area. Now, I only know of one company that's making this device. It's a Photodiox, which is a Chinese adapter manufacturer. And I use a lot of their adapters. I think they're good. Uh -huh. And this device has a wonderful name. It's called a Visilex RhinoCam. Okay. <laughs> and I have no idea why it's called that. But I'm going to have to check that out because... Um, <laughs> it's, I... quite an, it's quite a contraption. Yeah. I'm wondering if, and it's if uh, the, I'm sorry. Go oh, ahead. I was just, uh, I'm wondering if they have it 
um, you know, the, the idea would be for a four by five. So um, they do have it. And I also have one for a four by five. Okay. That's, that's That takes a Pentax camera. And what it is, is it, it, it mounts directly onto the graph lock back of the camera. And the one I got from Photodax actually was an early model that was missing a necessary groove to engage the graph lock tabs. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, that was disappointing. But then I realized it's just a piece of aluminum and I just cut a groove in it myself and now it works fine. Oh, okay. Um, so that the way that works is that the camera slides you know, back and forth and up and down. And the way this one works is it's very simple. Instead of having it move up and down, the hole where you mount the camera, the little bayonet mm-hmm. mount on the back of it, is off-center. So you, you take a line of shots horizontally, and then you turn it over and put it on upside down, and then take another line horizontally, and that gives you, oh, okay, you know, sure. two strips. Mm-hmm. And it's not as effective as you at first think it's going to be. The problem is it puts the film plane pretty far back. It's not putting... Because the camera... And then especially with this Pentax uh, camera that I'm using, mm-hmm. that's a long flange back distance. So it's already putting the, this tiny sensor another, whatever, 30, right. 40 millimeters farther back from the film plane that the camera was designed to be used at. And this creates two problems. It means that as you get out near the edge of your 4x5, it's, there's a lot of vignetting. So you're not going to get the image circle. Won't You won't get the full image circle. And the other problem is that it limits how wide a lens you can use because you're already so far back. So it's in that form, it isn't perfect, but that doesn't mean that a do it yourself version couldn't be made much better. So the answer in my opinion is to create an old fashioned telescoping type camera body that goes really flat and get that camera mounted as close as you can Mm -hmm. to where the lens can come. And just, you know, make this big box of a camera where there's nothing in the way of the image circle. And that would work pretty well. So there's still the problem of the shadow cast by the interior of the camera. Um, so you still aren't going to get it a full 4x5. But right. you can certainly stitch together a decent-sized image out of the middle of a 4x5 image circle. Right. Um, so it would it's a way you can use um, large-format lenses to make stitched high resolution digital images. And one of the cool things is that if you know you're using typical 4x5 cameras have a bellows. So focusing is easy. Um right. you have to focus with using the live view of the camera. You you can't use ground glass because it's at a different distance. But with a digital camera that's not a problem or with mm-hmm. a single lens reflex camera it's not a problem. You know, you could you could shoot. And it so it's a sec, it effectively works as an adapter. And this brings up another technique, which instead of buying this contraption, you don't need it at all. You can just um, take a rear. A, so a lot of large format cameras, the lens board fits just as well on the back standard as on the front standard. They're they're usually designed to be identical. Okay. So you can take a lens board, put a bayonet mount for any other camera on there, and stick it on the back, and then. That creates your own way to mount a different camera to a large format. Sure, it's body. not movable. Oh, I suppose. And then you can just use the movements of the, of the okay. rear standard yeah. to create your shift stitch effect. So you're still sure. limited by the the shadow that the camera throws and all that, but it's still it's completely effective. And like I'm saying, with the do-it-yourself version, you could make it you know work even better. Yeah. Um, so that's a a whole other thing and a whole other type of adapting to large format cameras. 
and I've fooled with it a little bit. I I, I shot with the Pentax uh, digital camera through the old 135 Optar lens off my dad's press camera, mm-hmm. and it just turns it into this perfectly good telephoto lens. You know? Sure, sure, absolutely. It, it worked fine. Yeah. I, so that's a whole other kind of realm of, of adapting that I'm yeah. just starting to play with. One of the things that's really nice about that kind of system is that you're, you know, it, it takes place over time. So um, you get um, the, the situation where you have, um, uh, how, how, how to describe it, a uh, situation where you have uh, you can things take that advantage move. Of- the time passing right things happen right yeah right no that's certainly true and and you also have to be careful because you can have problems with things like light changing so you know using this using the rhino cam device i can shoot eight frames in a matter of seconds if i'm really on the ball and i've got a good tripod it's pretty fast you click move click move click you know with, with some practice and it could be made even faster if it was mechanized, but this is just a manual thing where you slide it by eye, you know, to, yeah. to line up the dots and take a picture, line up the dots, take a picture. Um, but it's still pretty quick, and you could, but you can also make it slow. But here's the key thing: Photoshop needs a little bit of things to be going right in order to stitch together the images. Right. So if you're sloppy and you don't get good overlap between the frames, it can't deal with it. Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes I've found, um, sometimes JPEGs give it trouble. So it's often better to shoot raw because there's the more information Photoshop shop has, the easier it is, uh, easier time it has lining up sure. uh, the different frames and matching them. And then the other problem is you definitely need to set your exposure all manual because if you're, right. if you're using auto exposure and you go from the shadows to a bright scene, it's going to change the settings and what happens is you end up with it just you know the different squares when it's stitched together look different and it doesn't look right. Yeah, you and know it's you've got to have the, both the shutter and aperture just locked on one setting you know, and commit uh, to it. In uh, oh, this has got to be uh, mid nineties. There was a, a PJ Harvey record um, that had uh, its cover art was two stitched together photos, but they had different exposures. And mm-hmm. that thing just drove me nuts. And, and <laughs> you know, to the point where I just have no respect for PJ Harvey, no matter um, what the quality of her music is. Um, oh, you know, and, <laughs> and you know, it, it's just, it, it was one of those things that just when I saw that uh, and I looked at it, I, oh, way cool. Oh, wait. You know, and I looked (laughs) at it and it, it, you know, it's one of those things, uh, anyway. Well, well, very often, uh, Photoshop is just like you and just rejects it if you, you you know, if you, if you don't get it or, or it'll stitch it together and you'll see the, the chunks of different, you know, under overexposed chunks and it looks funny. So, but that's an easy fix. Just do everything all manual, manual focus, everything. So it stays consistent while you're, while you're shooting. And it's a lot of fun. And yeah. while we were talking about this, there's also no reason not to use lenses that are too small on a large format setup as another thing. So I, I'm setting up a, a lens board for large format cameras that'll take M42 lenses to start fooling around with using the whole image circle on different formats. Of I'm film, wondering if you could, well, let, be interesting. let's think about the concept of what we were just talking about. 
where you have a large lens and you're moving a small sensor across it. Can't mm-hmm. you have a large sensor, a four by five image, you know, a four by five, um, uh, film, oh, do multiple exposures and then with a do smaller multiple lens. exposures across oh, that's that. That's a really good idea. And, yeah, you see? know, obviously you're going to have some overlap, but, um, you know, so you're going to have varying exposures in those overlaps, but that could be just super cool. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. See, yeah. that's that's part of the joy of adapting is that you yeah. can land in in a in some strange planet you've never been to before, and very easily once you start putting the wrong parts on the wrong the wrong place, that's a, that's a great idea. All right, we need to do that. Put it on your list. So, one of the one of the adapters that I do have um, uh, is uh, just a plain old extension tube. Um, and that is, uh, an adapter that, uh, that simply doesn't adapt, a uh, one lens for, uh, another lens system. All it does is move the lens out, um, uh, which is, you know, it's certainly, it was the first of those adapters, you know, um, uh, that were used commonly, uh, in, especially mm-hmm. in the SLR world. Um, right. And you could use those to create a different adapter by simply replacing the, the bayonet mount at, you know, at the one end one to end, match right. a different, a different uh, camera or a different lens. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a good starting point for homemade adapters. I, and that, I, that reminds I, me, I don't, I don't want to forget to mention, yeah. um, while we're, we're going through all of this, the, um, uh, that I already forgot. <laughs> <laughs> that never happens to me. Um, when, one of the, uh, the things that I had, um, back in, um, the dig days was, um, I had a, a focusing bellows, you know, a macro bellows. Yeah, um, they're great. And, uh, the problem was that it was a non-communicating one, you know, so it was a, a dumb mount and a dumb mount. So I couldn't put a, um, uh, Canon EOS lens on the end of it. Cause it was just going to be wide open, you know, no matter what I did. So I had a, had an idea of getting an FD, a 28 millimeter FD and using that, um, on the other end. Uh, and I, I never could get the mount, uh, to work, you know, the, the other, other mounts to work. So, um, that was, um, uh, it, it was an attempt. It was an attempt. So I, that reminds me of what I had wanted to mention, which is that there are specialized adapters to solve problems like the one you were having. And I haven't bought any of these things, but I've sort of started to understand some of them by studying the, the you know, catalogs of these things. Photodiox makes a whole bunch of specialized adapters that do increase, either increase the communication between camera and lens or provide an alternative and one of the things they've done is for for people who uh, aren't going to get aperture control by you know say you're putting a modern electronic lens on a on a different wrong body and it's it's not going to be able to stop down they make adapters that will reduce the light some other way so sometimes there's a diaphragm in there that is like a replacement diaphragm but sometimes that isn't practical and they have actually dis- made these adapters and they call them throttles. But what it really is, is it's a variable ND filter 
in the adapter. Oh, okay. So, so you don't get to control depth of field, but you can give, get more exposure control. Okay, sure. And, and that's really an interesting, and there are I mean, always could be a possibly stops. useful thing, you know? I mean, it, it, it's like, oh, you, this is a way to have a variable ND filter built into your camera, essentially. Um, right. If you, if you can get away with using that adapter. So, yeah, yeah it's, an, there's a lot, there's all kinds of stuff out there. It's, uh, yeah. And now, of course, the, the fancy new, uh, mirrorless cameras from Nikon and Canon are coming out with, um, the smartest possible adapters that allow them to be backwards compatible with, you know, a huge range of lenses right. that they couldn't use in the past, um, on SLRs or DSLRs. So, so there's a, you know, there's a, uh, I think, you know, adapters are more and more and more becoming, uh, kind of a mainstay part of how cameras work, um, which is good. So one of the things that has come up recently of playing with some different cameras is there's one of my biggest issues is getting infinity focus just right when you have a camera that doesn't have an, an adjustment. So a camera with built-in bellows, you can always find the right place to focus because there's all this back and forth adjustment built right into the camera. But when you want a fixed body camera that's just going to take one lens, it has to be exactly the right length if you want to achieve infinity uh, focus and if it's if it's a little bit too short you know that's okay you can run your helical out until you find it and maybe create a stop for it and all that but you're always better off if you can have it start right out at infinity and then focus farther away because you'll get the full range of your helical will come into play and you'll be able to get the closest possible focus given that helical and that lens what you're really talking about is uh infinity focus stop yeah. You, you and, want it to stop at that. And you want it to stop it, and you also want it to give you the full range of your helical. And it's very hard to... It just turns out to be, in a practical sense, there's variation from lens to lens, and when you build a camera, getting it exactly right is much harder than it seems like it should be. You know, you might have an accurate measurement out to, you know, a tenth of a millimeter that you've gotten off some site, and you might build exactly to that. And I tell you what, almost never exactly works with the lens that you actually put on there. So I this is something that bugs me and I want to start making my cameras have a built-in adjustment for that. And that there's the simplest way is just to always make them too short and and use some kind of shims. Um and that's fussy. And mm-hmm. if you're going to change lenses around it's a pain in the neck and it would be nice to have kind of a built-in adjustment and when I went through a lot of different ways to do that, it dawned on me that the most sensible way is to have the actual back of the camera be able to be moved in and out over a few millimeters and then locked so that you could put a lens on uh, focus on infinity and then just tune that until where it's perfect and then lock it and it would just make that kind of camera so much easier to use um and and let's say i had you know two or three different lenses that i wanted to use that had the same focal length but were all slightly different well this would be a way that i could accommodate that without you know, without needing a lot of shims and, and fussing right. around. So that's a, a, a feature. And I noticed that Dora Goodman's uh, 
camera that I think it's called the the Good, Goodman One or the I forget the exact name of it, but it's one of her open source cameras that you uh, can 3D print yourself. And it's got a essentially a telescoping body, so it the body itself can function as bellows, uh-huh. um, but you can also mount lenses with a helical on this camera, and then the telescoping bellows becomes the adjustment I'm talking about, so that. It, it's a way mm-hmm. that that camera body design can be adjusted over a range, of, you know, within a certain range to give you the, the just the right flange back distance for a given lens. And I, I think that's a really useful feature. And I think that my sort of all purpose camera bodies that I'm working on, I, I want to include something like that in them uh, because that's sort of my biggest hassle is. I, I mean, I even have two different I have three different 90 millimeter lenses now and they all focus on infinity a little bit different like a few millimeters off enough that it's a a a real pain in the neck (laughs) because then your scale you know doesn't work and all that stuff so it this would be a very helpful feature that i'd I'd like to kind of recommend to people in general yeah i and i think that that's something that can be relatively easy to do um you know you just you know you're essentially having one box slide within another box right and i'm only really talking about i mean 10 millimeters would be generous you know it doesn't need that big of a range um of adjustment so that would be great yeah we just need a a good way to lock it down and even if it was just something with spacers you could you could 3d print spacers that you know for each lens and then you would have a quick you could just leave you know pull out the right spacer stick it in there screw the back on you know right it doesn't have to be super complicated, but there should be some simple way to operate it and adjust it. And um, anyway, that's something I'd like to see. And uh, the other thing that you've talked about using toilet paper tubes for this, but I would really like some kind of bellows set up that would allow me with a ground glass on the back that would allow me to put any lens on there. And when I've adjusted it till it's in focus at infinity, I can just read off a scale the exact distance and get the flange back distance right off of it. So right. basically what I'm saying is find an old bellows or bellows camera uh, or macro bellows or something. And it doesn't even need to show you the whole field of view. It just has to have a way to mount any uh, lens to one end, you know, a ground glass at the other and a really cl- accurate millimeter scale built into it. That you can just read off. I, yeah, I, I think that there's something uh, to be said for that. Um, but if you're building that, you might as well build it uh, with a four by five back, so that oh, sure. you can so that, that you can also then see the image circle. You're right. That um, would be more useful. And and so basically, you're just talking about using setting up an, a large format camera to use yeah. in this way, um, and and you can get your basic large format camera bodies pretty cheaply now. Um, or maybe I can figure out a way to put a permanent scale on mine, uh, so that I can use it that way. Mm -hmm. It's just that it's reading off that exact measurement. And that can be, I think with, you know, you'd need your, to be sure your standards were locked perfectly and everything. So, you know, there, it's not necessarily the perfect tool, but Mm -hmm. something like that would be a big help for me because I just can't seem to get those measurements right the first try. And it, it's a it's a real waste of effort to have to make two or three versions of something right. before you get what you need. So that's another uh, another invention that I think we need to figure out. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm kind of running into that same kind of thing right now, 
where I've been working with these lumen boxes for a while. And uh, one of the things that I've realized is I really need to take it out to a four by five size. But then that means that I have to figure out um, and I want to use a dedicated lens. Uh, and I've been buying lenses from uh, surplusshed.com. Uh, I want to take one of those dedicated lenses and build a box specifically for this, but I need a coverage of four by five. So, um, you know, that I've been thinking that exact same thing just well, this week. Got, so I just have four to figure by it five out. lenses though, right? I mean, right. I know you're, you're into making your own lenses, but you could also you well, know, stick it, a, ni- a 90 millimeter on there. And... Yeah. But then you're talking about it being, you know, a $10 box with a, you know, $100 lens. And what I want is a $10 box with a $5 lens. Um, I, I want to make it cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to make it so that, you know, I can sell it, uh, make a little bit of money and it can be cheap enough that somebody can buy it on a lark. Well, and um, they can put their own lens on it if they want a fancy lens. So right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, and, but... and, and also I really want you to make me an eight by 10 lens. Cause that's the lumen box I want. I want to shoot uh, an eight, eight by 10 paper negatives. <laughs> <laughs> So sure. That, will you? Well, right. at, at <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know what? Uh, I at just that was point, reminded, just get an eight by ten camera. <laughs> I was well. I was just reminded. There's a book on building cameras uh, that I mentioned earlier, and that I think it just came up on one of the podcasts again. And it, this guy does have it, uh, information on making your own eight by ten lens, and he makes a telescoping box style, mm-hmm. uh, old fashioned camera, and he puts his own lens together the way you're doing. So there is information on how, on my bookshelf on how to do this. So I'll, I'll try and look that up. Yeah. Pass it on to you. Um, yeah. And then this the other reason it's nice to work with 4x5 is that then you've got all the different roll film bags available. And right. All those right. Advantages. We talked last week about Raphael Palandri's uh-huh. uh, Ponf camera, which is a, a combination film and digital uh-huh. camera, 135 format. Very interesting idea um, and very appealing. And I am someone who shoots both film and digital, so this appeals to me. But I just wanted to, I don't know if I really went into it last time, but I've been thinking this through for a long time. And the version of it that I keep coming back to is a twin lens reflex version, mm-hmm. where you basically have a digital camera sitting on top of a film camera with identical lenses that focus together. Um, and so you can shoot either or both film and digital uh, with one focusing operation. And I think that's a pretty interesting idea. I mean, there's a lot there. And I like the simplicity of just having the two separate devices. The The tricky part, of course, is matched lenses. And so that pretty much makes it the most practical version would be a 35 millimeter version. So that right you would be able to, you know, without have little or no cropping of, of the uh, digital version. Yeah. Um, lens. yeah. Uh, one of the things though, you know, you could, um, those, uh, Mamaya C camera, uh, lenses, there's a Mamaya twin lens. Um, right. They're already set up for that. They're already set up for that and they're cheap. Yeah. Um, the only problem is that, they, that one lens is better than the other. 
So well, one if lens you want th- your if you so the top usually with with uh, twin lens reflex setups, yeah. the upper lens is not as uh, competent a lens. Let's say well, I, I it's think designed as a the, focusing aid primarily. Yeah, I think that they're relatively the same. The dif- difference is one has a a shutter and aperture built in. Right, and um, you don't need a shutter and aperture with your digital camera right. because, well, you, you do need an aperture, but you don't need a shutter. Yeah. Um, so that the catch is that you would have this wide open lens that's not optimized for image making; it's optimized for focusing. Right. So the other way to do it is you just get two identical lenses, um, and right. so something like M forty two mount would work really well. You just have two M forty two mount things, and they're easy to get identical lenses cheaply. So you know, you just screw two on, and you're ready to go. Uh, the only catch there is <laughs> you need a shutter for the film part. So yeah, right. th- there's no simple, <laughs> easy, easy thing unless you really start with the lenses and go from there. God. I've uh, okay. So uh, we were talking about um, uh, Raffaello Palandri and his uh, Pomp camera, and one of the things that came up in that you just mentioned shutters. One of the things that came up with that is the LCD shutter. So I've been looking, I've been doing the research in, into the LCD shutter, and they have two big problems. Um, one of them is that when they are closed, they are not 100% light tight. I think that... In, that, other, wor- in other words, they don't work. Well, no. <laughs> well, it, they're not ideal. Um, so if you're, if you're at... Uh, well, okay. So if you have 95% light shut down, uh, you know, so when it's closed, 95% of the light is blocked. Well, you put another one on, um, you know, you could have dual shutters, you know, with one that's essentially acting as a dark slide. So you'd have to figure out how to get them perfectly synchronized or close to it. Well, no, actually, I don't think that you would. I think that you could stagger them. I'll have one at a 60th and one at a 30th or something like that. Or, or yeah, or you, you could, um, you'd have to have the slow one in front of the faster one. Yeah. That, that would, yeah. Yeah. But I, but I, I think that, you know, if we're talking the, the times that we're talking about, you know, you could have, um, you know, probably, well, anyway, uh, you could, it sounds like it's something that's, that's got some possibility of being made to work yeah right right and right. but the pro the other half of that is when they're open they're not a hundred percent transparent Ooh. so um you have performance issues on both ends of that um i i i think that the not being a hundred percent transparent is a bigger problem um because then you would have to make an adjustment on exposure based on the fact that you're not getting hundred percent of that light. Um, right. so, you know, your F 2.8 lens is now a 5.6 lens. I don't know how, how much, and I would have to actually, you know, it's probably not even that much. It might be a, a small enough a, amount that yeah. you could just set your ISO on your light meter off a little and right. Yeah. About yeah, it, yeah. Yeah. Know? Absolutely. It, it could be that, that amount. Um, one of the things, um, that Ethan from camera dactyl, um, reminds us is that when you create a digital circuit board, one of the things that you have to do is have that circuit board approved um, by the FCC that it will not create interference 
um, on, you know, on anything else because it's, you know, it's emitting essentially small radio waves. Um, and that's a problem. So I did ask him whether or not you could do an analog board because analog boards are not subject to FCC approval. Um, as I understand it, I am not, don't, <laughs> don't go out and do something based on my lack of understanding, but that's the way I understand it. So, but he did say that you can control, you could control these with analog boards. And I'm, uh, you know, because it really is what's stopping us from really doing a full homemade system is that shutter. Uh, because we, uh, you know, or not even a full homemade system because we're using uh, lenses. But um, one of the things that's stopping us from using 35 millimeter SLR lenses on homemade cameras is that you then need a shutter. Um, well, I'm I'm ready to just buckle down and make a mechanical shutter that's just fast enough for handheld work. Yeah. And then adjust light other ways, like, you know, maybe with ND variable right. nd or whatever you know so or or your um water stop or whatever it's right. called waterhouse stop um, yeah. idea you know that those two things together would be more than good enough for most of the things i want to try yeah. um so it i just have to buckle down and fool around till i get a simple mechanical shutter that that allows you know the the basic control it's just uh it's just something to do um I think that's where I want to start anyway. Instead of trying to make something really complicated, just give give myself one or two shutter speeds and bulb and call it good, you know. And then and then try things out. And then if I find something really worth it, maybe I'll go for a fancier shutter. So, um, uh, is there anything that you're uh, working on currently other than you know the the what we've been talking about today? Is there so a- yeah so uh. uh Ethan Moses sent me a really cool new camera, uh, camera dactyl OG four by five hand camera. For and testing. I have one too. <laughs> and I've been testing it and using it. And I really like the thing a lot. And it mine is set up to take the 135 millimeter large format lens that came on my dad's crown graphic, which he bought in 1954 for a newspaper job. And I've, I've got now and camera's great. The lens is great. Um, but the crown graphic uh, you know, it's it's a an amazingly solid old camera, but I don't I don't want to take it dangerous places. It's right. aside from it aside from it being a beautiful old camera, it has sentimental value to me, and I, you know I don't I don't want to break it. So I want to be able to take uh, photographs with that kind of a camera uh, in more kind of dicey situations. Um, and this thing's perfect. The the 3D printed camera dactyl camera is it's a one piece rock solid chunk of really solid material and it feels very very strong it's kind of a little bit bulky but doesn't weigh anything so yeah it's it's, light uh, that's the thing that's really nice about it is it's i know and you put a small old-fashioned large format lens like the 135 Mm -hmm. optar on there and and that also those old lenses had really were quite fast for for a large format lens Mm -hmm. so they're pretty easy to focus and this thing uh the op uh the camera dactyl has a ground glass, which works surprisingly well. So you can do, you can focus directly quite easily with this camera, or set it up for scale focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really enjoying using it. And it's also my first uh, actual use of four x five. I've been shooting all my bigger cameras with roll film backs for you know some time now, and I've finally uh, launched 
on using some four by five film. And that's also kind of exciting. And I've been totally screwing it up. The first few negatives that I shot have all kinds of problems. And I, I think maybe the chemistry's expired. I'm developing them with, and there's all these issues, but the four by five negative has so much detail on it that even when you do a terrible job, it's still a really interesting, good image. So right, <laughs> I'm excited when I find, you know, get the developing figured out and uh, get a handle on that. I think it's going to produce some really, really nice photos. Well, I've, I finally done it. Uh, I I finally done it. No, um, the uh, I've been resisting four by five. Um, I've really been resisting four by five because of digitation and development. Um, I you know I have plenty of tanks. I can do thirty five millimeter and one twenty, all in those you know same tanks, different reels, but the same tanks. Um, and I was really hesitant to, well, you don't have a completely dark, dark room, do you? Uh, n- yeah, no, I have a changing bag. I don't, yeah, exactly. I can't do trays. Um, right. So, so you're going to have to create a, a, a large tented changing bag. So you can uh, tray yeah. develop in, <laughs> in the bag, man. <laughs> Stick my head in just to check it, right? Yeah. No, 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 no. You can't check it. It has to be completely dark. Oh yeah, you, yeah. You you'll you'll just go with a timer. Well, I was thinking um, about paper development too. So here's there. I've done a couple of things. Yeah. Well, paper um, negatives are a great solution. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've done a couple of. Well, I don't. Uh, I've done a couple of things. One of the things is I bought the uh, Stearman Press uh, SP four four five, which is the four by five tank. Uh, developer. Um, That's what I'm using. Yeah. So it's a daylight tank for, for takes four sheets of four by five film. Right. So I have that. Um, uh, I works. Well, you know, uh, I have two film holders, um, which gives me four shots. That tank will develop four shots. Um, so I actually think that, that, you know, that's an ideal situation. It limits me. It makes me think that I, okay, so I have four shots today. Um, you know, I'm going to make those shots absolutely perfect. Um, so there is, there's that element for it. I'm going to wreck that for you because a friend gave me a huge box full of those film holders and I'll send you a couple more. Well, yeah, that'll, those will be welcome because then I can do paper in some, because the other thing is, uh, I bought a safe light bulb. I bought a, um, set of developing trays and, um, you know, and I've got a bathroom. So yeah. and you know what the next trick though is that four by five paper is a little too big for the film holders. Oh, is it? So okay, yeah. And so the trick is you need to cut it down in complete darkness. And so I guess you could do it under a red light, but yeah. I don't have even a place to use a red light right now. I have to finish light proofing my little utility yeah. room. And so, but there is a trick which I need to to figure out, which is basically create a little paper cutter. So uh, make a little block of wood with a that you can slide the paper in and it'll just leave like whatever, a 16th or an eighth exposed. And then mm-hmm. you can just take a, or an exacto in, in the dark by feel slice that perfect amount off. So it will then fit mm-hmm. in the film holder. Yeah. Cause you do need to get that uh, size right in the film holder or it'll buckle. And then you, your focus will be all thrown off. Although that does sound a little bit interesting, doesn't it? So, <laughs> so anyway, so I've done it. Uh, I'm now in four, four, four by five. Um, so uh, um, now I can start uh, start really exploring that end, which I've not been able to do. Um, so I've shot two um, 
two shots. I've shot one holder. And they're just, you know, I went out and um, shot some something in my backyard. You know, nothing. I mean, I, I have not composed photos. I have taken two test shots. Um, hopefully I will develop them the day after tomorrow and, um, uh, and I'll have some results, but I wanted to do that before I, you know, I, I didn't want to shoot four and, and be wrong, <laughs> you know? So I just shot the two and I think that, uh, I think I'm pretty good. Um, uh, I think that mostly though, I think I'm going to scale focus that camera. I, um, because even I built a hood, um, for it, uh, a, a little. But, and yours is set up for a thing. pretty wide lens, right? Yeah, it's well, it's set up for a ninety. Um, yeah, well, on four by five, that's quite wide, isn't that yeah. the equivalent of a, like twenty five millimeter uh, right. field of view? So that's a good and wide lens. So yeah, scale focusing shouldn't be right, uh, a big right. problem at all. And I and I figured it out, and I'm gonna uh, gonna do it again. I think I'm gonna do it again with a little bit more precision. Um, but I have a an old rangefinder. And, um, I'm not going to do the scale focusing on actual, I'm going to do the scale focusing on what the rangefinder says. And I think the rangefinder is a little bit off, but, um, uh, if I make it, you know, uh, I measure it down them to, together, right, exactly. right, down to the millimeter and it's, you know, and it's exactly one meter. Well, if the rangefinder's off, then, you know, what's the point of that? Uh, well, so I'm basically gonna just, you're creating a new unit, the gram meter. Right. Right, exactly, right. and it and it and it and it doesn't matter because it, it's it's all it's going to work perfectly because it's going to be matched to the to the rangefinder. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I also have you know like a laser rangefinder. I could probably figure out how to mount on it, but that would be ridiculous. And um, it's probably all unnecessary unless you're planning to do um, a lot of work up close. Right, you know, it, right. It, you can probably just estimate and be fine. Right. Um, well, one of the things that I did was I, um, figured out, uh, there's some, uh, hyperfocal calculators online. And so, uh, I did a kind of a color coding, um, for, uh, hyperfocal with the, you know, um, with the far end at infinity for F8, F16 and F22. And so I have different color codes on um, the ring. So Yeah, and that's one of the great things about this camera is that there's a locking knob on right. the focusing helical. So if you you can set it on a uh, particular hyperfocal, tighten uh -huh. up the knob, and not have to worry about bumping the focus. And that's right. actually a really big deal because there's a lot of stuff you can bump and you know, a lot of things you have to do. And right. let's say even if you're using the ground glass, um, just putting the film holder in can knock, it, it's easy to knock the focus off, you know, if you're not paying attention. Uh -huh. So this, even using the ground glass, it's real handy to be able to get it just right and then tighten that knob up. And then you don't have to think about it anymore. You, right. you know, as long as you don't move the camera, you can take lots of pictures and it'll stay in focus. So, Sure. Yeah, um, it's, it's a really nice camera. And I wanted to also mention that, that all the fit, the way things fit on it is really impressive. Well, things right. like the cold shoe, like I've worked with a lot of different, uh, 3D printed cameras and, and not just yours, but, you know, uh -huh. various other brands. And sometimes the play is a little off. It's not easy to get that, um, those, those things to fit just right. And man, everything seems to fit perfectly on this. Like I, 
you know, stick things in that cold shoe and it just the right amount of tension. And I don't know, there's a, there's obviously a lot of care and work that went into these and I'm quite impressed. So do you have a book for us this week? You know what? I'm not going to recommend a book this week. Um, I'm going to recommend a podcast, which maybe a lot of people have already heard of, but I really have been enjoying a podcast called Everything is Alive. And I think it's, it's relevant to this because it's basically interviews with inanimate objects. And in a sense, that's what this whole podcast is, is about. You know, it's one long series of interviews with camera gear and objects that we, that we make and, and, and play with in, in order to make images. So there's a way that we're interrogating and interviewing all these objects endlessly. However, this podcast goes a lot deeper than we do. And it, it, it goes into all sorts of side avenues off of, you know, sort of the practical things you can learn from objects. And, and, and there, it's wonderful. I really, I recommend it. I, yeah, I highly recommend it as well. I've been listening to it from the beginning um, and, uh, one of my favorite ones was the, the lamp post. That was um, a great one. And, uh, and also the first one, which was the can of generic soda, generic cola. Yep. That was a good one too. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and believe me, uh, for those of you who have not yet heard it, it is smart. Um, yep. because it really does go into what it what it would be like to be these objects in the, in the world. And, uh, yeah. I assuming that they're sentient. Yes. <laughs> well, assuming we're sentient. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, it's a lot of fun. So, yeah. And absolutely. I think it's highly relevant. Yeah. So, uh, I wanted to shout out, um, uh, to chicken thumbs. Uh, I think I've already done that on the, uh, on the podcast chicken thumbs on Instagram. Uh, and he is another Graham. Um, uh, but he's a, he's a kind one, uh, cause he's an American and lives in New York. And, um, I, I, I'm still, uh, I'm still amazed if, if you go back, um, to uh he was interviewed on a lensless podcast maybe um maybe in the 40s of their episode numbers maybe in the 30s of their episode numbers um so go back um and uh and listen to that um it just some of his work lately has really caught my eye um uh and uh and he he, he does a lot of work around New York City and um and he's doing it with cameras that he makes and he makes some cameras that, that nobody else, uh, uh, is, is making. Uh, he has these ones that look like they're, they're, um, uh, crosses, you know, so it's a, an equilateral cross. Right. Um, and what's happening is he, uh, um, he, if you think of the box of the body, well, he runs, uh, paper, these are paper negatives. He runs paper up the side, uh, the sides of the box, not just on the back of the box. So there is the back of the box image, but then there are these side images. And I just, I, I just think that's so smart. Um, it, it's such an interesting way of seeing the world. Um, mm -hmm. so, uh, yeah, chicken thumbs on Instagram. And there's uh, a, there's a new camera, um, that I, uh, managed to get send send a how Lynch made and, and it, there's a mm -hmm. picture of it on our Flickr uh, group of for the homemade camera podcast and 
this is he's made uh something that really appeals to me the smallest possible uh medium format camera uh that he could come up with and it's it's making a i think the image well the whole camera is four inches by three inches by two inches so it's just a box and uh but it's it's uh it's making a let's see what does he say it's not a standard format you would like it it's an odd shape format but it's it's still 120 film and Mm -hmm. uh, it's a really elegant little camera and i like that a lot i like the idea of getting medium format as small as possible Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um uh we can get a hold of you uh nick how do we get a hold of you uh well nick is it nick lyle at the homemade camera podcast yes or nick at the homemade podcast okay nick at homemadecamerapodcast.com. There you go. And I'm also Graham at homemadecamerapodcast.com. And how else for you? Uh, a Flickr, I have Avynick, A-V-Y-N-I-C-K. Uh, and that's you it, on Instagram as well? Uh, uh, no, that's me on Instagram. Sorry, Flickr oh, yeah. is, Nick, is Nick Lyle. Okay. I don't even know how to get hold of myself. You're right, exactly. I never call my own <laughs> phone number. Um <laughs> The, uh, yeah. Um, and you can get a hold of me on, uh, Flickr. I am freezer of photons, all one word, uh, on Flickr, on Instagram. I'm Graham homemade camera, uh, all one word. And, um, yeah. And, uh, uh, you can send us emails. You can yell at us. You can scold us. Um, and, um, and And you can, and you can thank Robbie Cribs for, uh, for a great uh, piece of music that we're using as a soundtrack throughout our podcast. Mm-hmm.